I was in Myanmar, that is the country that was formerly called Burma, a few years ago, and I met some pastors there who were deeply embroiled in some discussions with the government. The government in Myanmar was and still is a military government. It is a right-wing authoritarian government, very, very different from the left-wing authoritarian governments ruling the countries that we'd been in immediately before Myanmar. And the reason that they were embroiled in discussions with the government was that they were rewriting, the government that is, were rewriting the constitution. And these pastors were eager to discuss with the authorities the whole area of constitutional religious freedoms. And I was fascinated because it seemed to me in my ignorance that they were getting all hung up on something not particularly important. It seemed that their constitution allowed the people of Myanmar the freedom of worship. But the pastors wanted it changed to freedom of religion. And the government would not budge on this. They said, you have freedom of worship, that's it. And they said, we want freedom of religion. So I opened my big mouth and said, well, what's the difference? Which, of course, is what probably some of you would have done, not to suggest that you have a big mouth. And these people said to me, Stuart, freedom of worship here means that building over there is the house of worship. That man there is in charge of worship, and we appoint him. These are the times when you will worship. You don't have to worship. If you don't want to worship, nobody's forcing you to worship. So you are free to worship, or you are free not to worship. You worship there. He is your leader. He will show you what worship is all about. <laughs> so they said, that is freedom of worship. Freedom of religion is, I have the freedom to practice what I believe. That my beliefs make an impact on my behaviors. My behaviors are determined by the belief structures upon which they are predicated. And the government says, oh no, no, we're not giving you that freedom. In other words, we want you in that building. We want to know when we've got you there. That's God's house, and we can keep God and you nicely contained there on our terms. We don't want you let loose in the community. We don't want you getting out there behaving on the basis of your believing. You may remember that I was talking about the problem that we have of thinking that church is somewhere we go, that it is God's house, that we have God contained in that situation on our terms, and we can visit him, and then we can leave, and we can move out into an entirely different environment, and then go and visit God again some other time. This is very, very similar to the dichotomy 
that these authoritarian regimes are building on the dichotomy between freedom of worship and freedom of religion. In other words, when we're talking about the church, we are talking about a community of people who have come together on a common basis of belief that morphs into behavior, that impacts not only their coming together, but has a profound impact on their scattering into the community in which they live. And it's very, very important that we don't succumb to the idea that church is somewhere we go. It isn't. Church is something we are. Well, let's move on a little bit from that. Let's look into the question, well, if church is something we are, what are we? You're well aware of the fact that the New Testament was written in Greek, not in English. The Greek word translated church is ecclesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, the word from which we obviously get our English word ecclesiastical, ecclesia. It comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out of, klerao, which means to call. So you put the two together, and the ecclesia is the called out ones, the called out people. That is the fundamental meaning of the word. In the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it talks about Israel. Do you remember there were slaves in Egypt, and God called Moses and told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, that they may worship me, that they may serve me. And God delivered them through the mighty exodus. And you remember that they came into the wilderness of Sinai and wandered for 40 years and then eventually went into the land of promise. Those were the called out people. They were called the congregation in the wilderness. In actual fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the children of Israel in the wilderness, the called out community, were called the ecclesia. So in other words, the roots of the word that is translated church in the English, ecclesia, are to be found in the Old Testament where God calls out the people of Israel, calls them out to himself, puts them in the land of promise to be a, the people of God, a holy nation, a new generation. They are placed land in order that they might be to the surrounding nations a model of what a nation under God can be, the ecclesia, the called out people. That's who we are. That's who we are. Years ago, Jill and I had taken a group of our closest friends, about 200 of them, little touch of humor there, and <laughs> we'd take them to the, to the Middle East. And we were in Athens on our way home. Our flight had been delayed from Athens, and the people on our tour were very tired, very ready to go home, and it was very, very hot. And our guide was droning on and on and on and on, about ancient Athens. Our group of people 
were more interested in cold drinks and shade and ice cream than ancient Athens. So in the end, I was the only person left with the guide, but I had a personal tutorial and I loved it. We sat up there on the Parthenon, overlooking the ruins of ancient Athens. And he pointed out to me what was very obvious, the outline of the Agora, the marketplace, and then the Stoa, the covered colonnades around the Agora, where people would sit and meet their friends and drink their Starbucks and philosophize and talk politics and all this sort of thing. It was the hub of Athenian life. And occasionally, my guide told me, a man would come into the Agora and uh, by blowing a trumpet, he would arrest the attention of all the people. And they were expected to be quiet when that trumpet sounded. And he would then make a proclamation. He would then make an announcement. Interestingly enough, the Greek word that describes this herald and his proclamation is the Greek word that's translated preach in the New Testament. But that's what the preacher is supposed to do. He's supposed to grab hold of people's attention and make a proclamation. The, the person, the herald who came into the Agora did not invite a debate. He did not ask for questions and answers. He did not poll the people. He simply made a proclamation. And the proclamation would be something like this. The king is about to return to the city, go to the gates and welcome him. Or the enemy fleet has been sighted on the horizon, man the men of war. Or the games are about to begin. All proclamations, all statements of fact that required response. But sometimes he would make the announcement, the ecclesia is in session. The ecclesia is in session. And when that announcement was made, all the activities in the agora had to cease. People had to lock up their stores, they had to dismiss their classes, and everybody who was a member of the city-state of Athens was required to leave the agora, go to a small hill outside the city limits, where every member of the city-state was required to congregate. They were the congregation. They were the called-out people. And there they were called out to deal with the business of the city-state of Athens. Based on one very simple premise, if you enjoy the privileges of citizenship, you accept the responsibilities of citizenship. And you are required, when the ecclesia is called into being, you are required to be present. That was it. There was a name, actually, that they had for a little minority who would always find a way of not going to the ecclesia. And the word for them in the Greek was idiotes, which has an English translation, which, of course, we would not mention in such company. But the idiotes were the people who just wanted to be individuals. They just wanted to go it their own way. They did not want to be involved in the community life, the idiotes. So here's the situation. The called out community 
We're now making a priority of community affairs, of community life. Individually, they enjoyed the benefits. Collectively, they committed themselves to the community. And they were at times called out to deal with community issues. Ecclesia. Now, this is the word that is taken up by the writers of the New Testament and over and over and over again we read about the ecclesia. It's very interesting to see that at times it's called the church of God. But then after it is called the church of God, it says in Corinth. And there you you have a fascinating picture. This is something that is God's doing. He is calling out his people but he is intentionally placing them in Corinth. They are the called out people of God in a geographical location, and they are there for a purpose. This is who we are. Church isn't somewhere we go. This church is something that we are, the called out people of God. Now, when we talk about the called out people, we've got to remember that they were called out to deal with community affairs. And so my definition of a church, bearing in mind all these things I've been talking about, my definition of a church is a church is a community of the called. A community of the called. And a community of the called, if we do understand it, requires a clear understanding of what it means to be called, what it means to be called into community. What is it that is unique about the community of faith that is something to be treasured, that is something that when we're called to participate in it, we do it? What is it that is unique about this community, and what exactly is this calling that we have receive. Now, if you look at the letter to the Ephesians, for instance, at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, now I, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Walk worthy of the calling you have received. What's interesting to me about that is that the general way of interpreting that is, well, I have been called to be a a believer in Jesus. I've been called to be a disciple of Jesus. But if you read that in its context, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. The first three chapters of Ephesians are talking about what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be living stones built together into a habitation where God lives by his spirit, what it means to be the unique called out people of God. That is the calling that the first three chapters of Ephesians are talking about. And now the practical application in chapter 4, verse 1, is all right, walk worthy of that calling. Now, it's very easy to see that it's not an individualized calling that Paul is talking about, because he then says, if you're going to walk worthy of your calling, then it is going to require you to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity of the Spirit is talking about community life. 
And then he goes on to say what it's going to take to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's going to require us to be humble and gentle, forbearing with one another in love, and being willing to work at it. Notice that what Paul says here. He says this unity of the Spirit has to be maintained, not manufactured. There's all the difference in the world between manufacturing something and maintaining it. I have my Mini Cooper parked outside here. It's the dirtiest car in the lot. My little Mini Cooper, I know how to maintain it. I know how to get the oil changed. I know how to get the air in the tires, etc., etc. I wouldn't have a clue how to make it. I wouldn't know to start. I'm glad that God has called me to manufacture the unity of the Spirit. I do recognize that he has called me to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But what is this unity? Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul goes on even further, and he tells us there are seven things that believers have in common. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, etc., etc., etc. This is what it means to be called into the community. When we look into what is unique about the community of the called, what we find is that over and over again in Scripture, we read the little expression, one another, one another, one another. Do a study on this sometime, and you get a very, very practical picture of what it means to be part of this community of the called. That is the basic meaning of ecclesia. Why is it important that the church should see itself not just as a group of individuals who go there and come sometimes and don't come sometimes and go for a while and then quit going, etc., etc.? Why does it matter? It matters because of, of this reason. In the beginning, God created human beings. Well, actually, he created one human being, the male variety. And you remember that he evaluated everything that he created, and he said, good, 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 uh, not good. Now, women, of course, understand that he was talking about men when he said not good. This is a surprise to most men, but... This is also an example of taking a text out of its context and finishing up with a pretext. What he actually said was, it is not good for man to be alone. So he made woman. Now, when God made man, the male, he made an individual. When God created the woman, he created something entirely different. He created community. When God created the individual, things were relatively simple. It was God and man and man and God. That was it. When God created woman, it was God and man, man and God, God and woman, woman and God, woman and man, man and woman. You see what women did? You see, you see this, this whole entirely different situation. Okay, then after creation comes the fall. When the fall happened... Everything that was good wasn't good anymore. It was ruined. It was spoiled. It was fallen. When the individual fell, 
What it meant was we came up with something called alienation. Individuals alienated from God. When community fell, something else happened. It was called fragmentation. Alienation of the individual, fragmentation of the community. When we look at alienation of the individual and fragmentation of the community, we say, this is the world we live in. Look at our world, and there's every imaginable evidence of fragmentation of the communities. There's all kinds of evidence of the alienation of the individual. The situation that we have right now is that God is intervening in a fallen world in what we call redemption. Always remember creation, fall, redemption, glory. Creation, all things are good. Fall, alienation, fragmentation. Redemption, rolling back the consequences of the fall, rolling back the consequences of alienation of the individual and fragmentation of the community. Well, you ask the average Christian, what is God's redemptive activity designed to roll back the alienation of the individual? The average Christian will tell you right away, it, it's Christ. It's Christ. That's, that's what he does. He reconciles alienated men and women to God. That is the essence of the Christian gospel for the individual. But it's not just the individual, it's the community that is fragmented as well. Does God care? And I believe the answer, the obvious answer is, of course he cares. Well then, what is God's answer to the fragmented community? If Christ is the answer to the individual who's alienated, what is God's answer to the community that is fragmented? And I believe the answer is an alternative community. An alternative community. And what is this alternate community? It's the community of the called. It's a community of the called. Now many people say, I don't want to be bothered with that. It's too much of a hassle. Just let me do my own thing. Just let me do my individual thing. I don't want to go through all the stuff that happens in being part of a community. Let me take a little bit of this and a little bit of that when I want to. And when I don't want to, I don't need to. And what is happening? We are robbing a fragmenting community of the model that it needs, the model that God intends it to see in the alternate community. So there's the picture now. The ecclesia is the community of the called. Why is the community necessary? And what does it mean to be called? Those are the fundamental issues that we need to address. Let me direct your attention now in, in closing, in just a few minutes. By the way, have you noticed this is no preacher's technique? When people are getting tired, you just bring in the word in closing. You see, that buys you five more minutes. You see, it works like a dream. My brother said to me on one occasion, talking about our father, who incidentally, art in heaven. Um, he, he said, have you noticed 
When dad is preaching, sometimes he says finally, and sometimes he says lastly. And I said, I have actually. He said, have you noticed if he says finally, he finishes? And if he says lastly, he lasts. (laughs) (laughs) So lastly, uh, oh, excuse me, finally. Let me just direct your attention to a wonderful little verse in Ephesians that has caused me all kinds of headaches trying to figure out what it is actually saying. It's at the end of a prayer of the Apostle Paul, second half of Ephesians chapter 1, in which he prays all kinds of things, including that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. And having prayed that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened, he talks about three specific areas. I won't get into that. The third of these three areas that he wants their hearts to be enlightened about is the area of recognizing the power that is available to the average Christian, the power that's available to the average Christian. And he says it's the power that he used when he raised up Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Then he takes off and talks about the ascended Lord and all the power that's available to him. And then he says in verse 22, and God things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's a description of the church that blows my mind. That he is the head over everything on behalf of the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, Paul uh, frequently talks about the church being the body of Christ. But here he says that the church as the body of Christ is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word fullness can also be translated completion. And what he seems to be saying here is this, that Christ is the one who completes everything. He brings everything to fulfillment. Well, we know that. All things eventually will be brought under his feet, and he will be seen to be the head over all things, and all things will come together under his headship. We we know that, so that he is the one who fulfills all things. But he says that something will fulfill Christ. Something will fulfill Christ. Now, if Christ is going to fulfill everything, how can something fulfill him? That is the puzzle of this verse here. And the answer or the clue to the answer is it is the church in its capacity as the body of Christ that fulfills Christ. It is the church as the body of Christ that fulfills Christ. Now, let me tell you a story about when we were building the new site for Elmbrook Church to worship in. We'd hired the architect, and he had said that he would be available to anybody and everybody in the congregation who wanted to give him any ideas about what we should incorporate in the building. Can you believe that? And he filled legal pads of stuff. And then he came to me at the end and he said, do you have any ideas? And I said, I do, as a matter of fact. 
And he said, let me have. So I said, okay, I'd like the building to be circular. And he said, why? And I said, because the two main things that this congregation is interested in is teaching and fellowship. The best environment for a community of people to meet for teaching and for fellowship is in a circle. He said, why? I said, well, you can't have fellowship with the back of somebody's head. Look, look at the back of, of a head in, in front of you. Not very expressive at all. Front of head, entirely different matter. So you need to seat people so they can see the front of, of the head, you see? So I said, well, I'd like them seated circular. He said, all right, what's the second thing? I said, I'd like the pulpit in the geometric center. He said, why? I said, because when Jesus taught the people, the people gathered round him. And I said, the most convenient way of getting a lot of people close to you is in a circle. So he said, okay, so you want it circular? You want the pulpit in the geometric center? He said, anything else? I said, yes. I'd like a gallery for the spirits. And at that point, he, he looked up rather surprised, and he said, as only American can say, huh? <laughs> and that's the American equivalent of the British, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I beg your pardon. I said to him, I'd like a gallery for the spirits. He said, what are you talking about? I said, this building is so expensive. He said, well, you got that right. And I said, the expense is all to do with bodies. Well, he said, I can see that. I said, heating them, cooling them, lighting it, putting a roof over them to keep them dry, windows so they can see. It's all bodies. He said, you're right. I said, we'll save money with the gallery for the spirit. And he said, well, what would you put in it? And I said, all, all those folks who say, so, sure, sorry we can't be with you on Sunday, but we'll be with you in spirit and he said is this British humor and, and I said it is but you shouldn't worry about it and then he said something very very helpful to me he said he said sure if you ain't there in your body you ain't there period that's profound if you ain't there in your body you ain't there period. So I thought to myself, what's the body? And the body is the vehicle of the spirit. And the vehicle of the spirit is designed to make it possible for a spirit to function in a geographical location. Now, is Jesus in the world today? The answer is yes. Has anybody seen him? No. Well, how is he here? By his spirit. And what does a spirit need to function in a geographical location? And the answer is a body. So what does Jesus, living in the world by his spirit, need? A body. If Jesus needs a body, and he's got a body called the church, the church, his body, is the fulfillment of him who fulfills everything. That, to my mind, was the most exciting concept of the church I'd ever heard. And quite frankly, that is why I decided 
Well, one of the main reasons I decided to move away from itinerant preaching all over the world, a week here, a week there, a week here, a week there. And I said to God, what I would like, what I really like, would be the opportunity to go to a town, become part of a community of the called, and see what God would do, placing his spirit in that body of believers who would become the fulfillment of him who fills everything in every way. And that's why, with all its faults, and I'm talking about the church in general, not any one church in particular, that's why with all its faults, I want to hang on, and I want to stick with it, and I want to insist and persist in seeing Jesus doing what he wants to through his body. And you know why, don't you? Because church is not somewhere you go. Church is something you are.